Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. Raj is not in Discord yet, so that means I have to wake him up. So it's time to call him on Facebook. Get the week tied up nicely as we look at what's happening here on the, what is it, the second week of July. Alright, there we go. Excitingly discovering our news as we wake up. <laughs> I, have more, I have more news about our hot, hot planet, but it's uh, a... Okay, three I got three stories so we can start and then I can go. How, how long is your first story? Less than five minutes or more? Oh, it's not very... I have two very, very short stories, like only... Wanna, not even, only a page, like I don't even need to scroll. Won't have time to run to the lobby now. So I guess I just all right, no problem. I'll suffer. I'll. This my middle story is longer though, so you can probably run to lob. No, actually, it's short too. You'll just suffer. I'm thinking of poor people in this world that are going days without eating. And I'll okay. All right. Go ahead. Are you gonna sit like Do that you... though? Cause you're off frame. Yeah. No. <laughs> you're like you're a... in the corner. You're just like in the corner over there, being like, "Hey guys, welcome to the news." <laughs> My cat dragged me in. Okay. If we're ready to go. I was fighting with that cat that was dragging me in. Alright, go ahead. Today on Before Coffee. London losing out to Paris and Milan over tourist shopping, says Burberry. India launches lunar mission. Will Spain snap election usher in the far right? Or can PM's gamble pay off? And the hottest spot on Earth is also a hot spot for visitors. Cluster munitions from the U.S. arrive in Ukraine. And the world's largest 3D printed building is a horse barn in Florida. Today, on July 14th, 2023 edition of Before Coffee. Okay, let's look at my first news story here about tourism. We're both talking about tourism. It wasn't a plan. Uh, let's see. <laughs> this is from Mark Sweeney on The Guardian. Burberry has reported a sales surge of almost a fifth thanks to a bounce back in China. But the luxury British fashion brand has warned that London is losing out to its rivals such as Paris and Milan, which are enjoying a stronger tourist shopping boom. The British fashion brand, best known for its signature check bags and raincoats, said that the global sales grew 18% year-on-year to $589 million in the first quarter... Oh, sorry, of the second quarter to the, first, to the first of July. Wait, that's two quarters. It's its fastest growth in two years. The company pointed to a strong sales recovery in mainland China, which suffered from COVID-19 related lockdowns last year, where sales rose 46% year on year. However, the U.S. was a weak spot, with the Americas regions reporting a sales decline of 8% year on year in the quarter. The luxury fashion retailer, which is this week launched its Best of Great Britain campaign as it gears up for September launch of its autumn winter collection, said that the outwear and leather goods proved a hit with shoppers. Sales of outwear led by the 167-year-old brand's classic heritage rainwear soared 36% with vintage Burberry check 
and Francis sunglasses also selling well. The company also said that the leather goods sale rolled by 13% year on year. However, the company, which said the tourist growth across Europe rose 53% year on year, said that the UK's government decision to stop allowing tourists to reclaim VAT on shopping purchases was hurting Britain's status as a holiday shopping destination. I had no idea you could reclaim VAT on holiday shopping purchases. This is great news. London, or maybe you can't anymore, I guess. Because <laughs> they, they, uh -huh. they stopped. London has strength, but we are definitely seeing a stronger recovery of shopping in continental tourists compared to the UK, said Ian Br Brimacombe, the interim chief financial officer at Burberry. At the moment, we are seeing Britons going to Europe and other nationalities going to continental Europe for their buying as opposed to London. Brimacombe, who said that the tourists had not been put off shopping in Paris despite the recent riots and unrest in France, said that the UK needed a new scheme because European rivals offered various incentives to shoppers. Being a home British brand, we would love to attract more tourists shopping here, he said. It is not really a level playing field at the moment. We need to even up the competition with continental Europe. Sales across Europe, the Middle East, India, and Africa rose 17% in the first quarter. Burberry also enjoyed a strong performance across Asia's Pacific. Sales in Southern Asia rose 39%, with Japan up 44%. Wow. While tourists splashing out on the luxury brand went on holidays, drove sales up at 17% across Europe. The luxury market continues to thrive unabated as more well-heeled shoppers continue to purchase items consistently. With demand levels, this provides helping to maintain the market, said John Coldham, a retail partner at the law firm. Gowling WLG. So there you go, a little quick uh, review on uh, how a luxury brand is not making as much money as they could be making, and so they're complaining about it because, as you know, 17% is not enough. We need 100%. We need double the right. profits every year. <laughs> right. My three yachts need a crew. <laughs> And I have to pay those fuckers. Yeah, that's right, man. They don't work for cheap. I had to import them from Philippines. India is on its way back to the moon. This is from the New York Times. Kenneth Chang and Hari Kumar. After a rocket lifted off from Suricota, a launch site off the country's east coast on Friday afternoon local time. So this is Friday in India today. The mission, Chandrayaan-3, is largely a do-over after the country's first attempt at putting a robotic spacecraft on the surface of the moon crashed nearly four years ago and it ended in a crater. Uh -oh. Chandrayaan-3 is taking place amid renewed interest in exploring the moon. The United States and China are both aiming to send astronauts there in the coming years and half a dozen robotic missions from Russia and Japan and the United States could head there this year and next. A robotic lander and rover aboard Chandrayaan-3 succeeded in landing intact, if, if, it, if it succeeds in landing intact, that will be an accomplishment that no country other than China pulled off this century, adding that the nation, national pride India takes in its homegrown space program, a cadre of commercial space startups are also popping up in India. 
Last month, India reached an agreement with the United States to send a joint mission to international space next year. Sorry. The Indian Space Research Organization, Indian's equivalent of NASA, is also developing its own spacecraft to take astronauts into orbit. On Friday, 2.30 p.m. local time, or 5.05 a.m. Eastern time, a rocket called Launch Vehicle Mark III lifted off in the Indian Space Base on an island north of the metropolis of Chennai. As crowds waving Indian flags and colorful umbrellas cheered, the rocket rose into the sky. 16 minutes later, a spacecraft separated from the rocket's upper stage, and a round of cheering and clapping erupted in the Mission Control Center. It is indeed a moment of glory for India. Jitendra Singh, the Minister of the State for India's Ministry of Science and Technology, said in the remarks after the launch, a moment of destiny for all of us over here at here in Coda, who are part of the history of the making. Over the coming weeks, the spacecraft will form a series of engine firings to elongate its orbit before heading toward the moon. A landing attempt is, a ske is scheduled to occur on August 23rd and 24th, time to coincide with the sunrise and landing site in the moon's polar region. Wow, it takes over a month to get to the moon now. <laughs> it used to take two weeks. Landing spot in the moon is one piece of difficult... Landing on the moon in one piece is difficult, and many space programs have failed. Chen, it's funny how the United States succeeded in its first try, though, right? Chandrayaan means moon craft in Hindi. Chandrayaan 1, an orbit launch in 2008, and the mission lasted less than a year. Chandrayaan 2 mission lifted out successfully in July 22, 2019, and the spacecraft successfully entered orbit around the moon. The landing attempt on September 6, 2019 appeared to be going well until the lander was about 1.3 miles above the surface when its trajectory diverged from the planned path. The problems arose because one of the lander's five engines had thrust that was slightly higher than expected. S. Somath, the chairman of the Indian Space Agency, said during a news conference a few years ago. The spacecraft tried to correct, but the software specified limits on how quickly it could turn and because of the higher thrust, the craft was still some distance from its destination, even if it was, as it was approaching the ground. The craft is trying to reach there by increasing velocity to reach there, whereas it was not having enough time to do so. Yeah. It's like trying to steer your way out of a wreck, and then you just don't run out of room instead of hitting the brakes, you know? Years, years later, a amateur internet sleuth used imagery, imagery from the NASA spacecraft to locate the crash site where the debris of the Vakram lander and Pygram rovers sit to this day. The Chandrayaan-2 orbiter continues to travel around the moon where its instruments are being used for scientific study. For that reason, the Chandrayaan-3 mission was a simpler, has a simple, simpler propulsion module that will push a lander and a rover out of Earth's orbit and then allow it to enter the orbit around the moon. Okay, guys, it goes on a little bit longer because these guys don't know what word economy is. Anyway, that's your story. Indians on the way to the moon. Next story. Indians are going to the moon. Hell yeah. More brown people yep. in space. That's what I say. Yep. I don't know why I say that. Okay, in Spanish news, 
Pedro Santez is betting on a galvanizing left-wing voters to block the far right getting into government for the first time since Franco by Sam Jones in Madrid. This is more of like a analytical article, so there's questions and then the, he answers the questions, right? So here's what we're given. Why is Spain holding a snap general election this month? Spain was due to go to the polls in November. For years ago after the last general election, but its socialist prime minister Pedro Sanchez surprised everyone in May by calling an early election for July 23rd, after his party's poor showing in the local and regional polls. Polls, Faced with a resurgent opposition conservative People's Party PP that exceeded the expectations in those elections, and which is firmly ahead in the opinion polls. Sanchez bought forward the election in hope of mobilizing left-wing voters and avoiding months of wear and tear to his coalition minority government. How has Sanchez's administration fared over the past four years? When Sanchez's Spanish Socialist Workers Party, or PSOE, reached a government agreement with the far-left anti-austerity Unidas Podemos alliance, in January 2020, Spain got its first coalition government in 80 years. Wow, congratulations. The coalition would hail its major achievements as the relatively good state of the economy, its labor reforms, the introduction of menstrual leave, and the updating of abortion legislation, a euthanasia law, and minimum basic income scheme. It has bought in a democratic memory law intended to give justice, reparations, and dignity to victims of the Civil War and the subsequent Francisco Franco dictatorship, and done much to calm the issues of Catalan independence. The alliance has also weathered the COVID pandemic and the effect of Russia's war in Ukraine. Spain's inflation rate is as low as just 1.9%. Wow, good job. There have, there have however, been president, persistent personal and ideological tensions between the centrist PSOE and the more radical Unidas Podemos most notably over the latter's botched sexual consent, consent legislation, under which more than 100 sex offenders were inadvertently released from jail. That's a, that's not just a, that's not just a small problem. How do opposition parties view the government and its track record? Less than fondly. Both the PP and the far-right Vox party regularly attacked the government for its reliance on the votes of Catalan and Basque pro-independence parties in Congress. They accused Sanchez of being craven in his dealings with the Catalan independence movement and were bitterly opposed to a decision to grant pardons to nine Catalan leaders for their roles in the illegal failed, in the illegal failed push for regional secession six years ago. The PP also frequently deplores a style of government it calls Sanchismo, which is viewed as cynical, opportunistic, and fixated in retaining power. That's great. Sanchez is the leader. Machismo. They mix it together. Sanchismo. <laughs> ah. The play on word. Okay. What is the stake on July 23rd? Put bluntly, the election will determine whether Spain succumbs further to the far-right drift experienced in so many European countries. The poll is a choice between a left-wing and a white-wing coalition, the PSOE and the new left-wing Sumar Alliance on one hand, the PP and Vox on the other hand. The PP is leading in the polls. It is not expected to win an absolute majority, meaning it will need to rely on Vox's support to govern. While the PP's leader, Alberto Nunes Fierro, 
has tried to emphasize his party's moderate credentials, he has repeatedly shown a willingness to form coalition with Vox, as it has the regions of Castilla y León, Valencia, and Extremadura. Sanchez is hoping that the prospect of a far-right government enter a uh, far-right party entering government for the first time since Spain's return to democracy after the death of the dictator Franco in 1975 will galvanize left-wing Spaniards to vote in droves. Do you guys want another civil war? Is that what you want, guys? 1975 is not that long ago. So, I think that's a good, I, guess, I think it's an interesting strategy to try to threaten the voters being like, "Hey, if you want a dictator, you know, go ahead. I am not going to stop mm. you." Um, what are the big issues? As elsewhere, the cost of living crisis is a daily reality for Spaniards. A Bank of Spain report published last week found that 9% of Spain, Spanish households could not pay their bills last year because of the rising cost of interest rates. At a recent IPSOS poll for La Vanguardia found that the economy was the single biggest issue for voters, with 30% of those surveyed putting it at the top of their list. Then came unemployment at 10% and healthcare at 9%. Immigration, one of Vox's favorite talking points, was the most important issue for just 2% of the people polled. Yeah, like, who? they need people to live in Spain. I don't know if you know this, but Spain yeah. thought they were going to get a lot of people when they joined the European Union, or when they joined the Euro. Because I think they were in the union, but then they have the same money. So they, they joined the money currency. And they thought they were going to have an influx of people coming to Spain to spend all their money. And then they built all these towns, these new infrastructures, and these suburbs. Because they thought people were going to move to Spain. Right? Look at our great weather. Everyone's going to want to live here. Those houses not only were never finished. They're completely abandoned in the countryside. Just abandoned villages. Because they half built the houses and then they didn't. Re nobody came to actually live in the houses, and they were like, "Oh, we don't have any buyers, guys." So yeah, they don't care about immigrants. They kind of want them, genuinely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are they getting more immigrants from this, or are they don't? Yeah. Not even tourists. Not even tourists. Okay. Yeah, they want people to actually live in the country. Which parties are taking part in the election? Although PSOE and the PP and Fox are the biggest hitters in the election, much attention has been focused on Sumar, the new left-wing alliance led by Spain's popular labor minister Yolanda Diaz. Support for Podemos, once touted as a party that would eclipse the PSOE, has ebbed away in recent years, and it performed disastrously in the May elections. It has reluctantly agreed to join Sumar, but there is a bad blood between some in the party's old high command and the new outfit. Notably, absent from the general elections is the center-right Ciudadanos. Ciudad? What does Ciudad mean? Ciudad means... Clear year? City. City. Oh, city city, city year. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not años with a tilde, so I don't know what años means. Anyways, means which have we seen as possible part of the government until a disastrous lurch to the right cost it dearly five years ago? It don't, did so abysmally in the recent regional and local election, it's not running in the general election. Good news for the PP, which is the bad... We don't want the PP to win, by the way. Uh, I do find it funny that Europe right now, their elections are just incredibly on one spectrum to the other. Instead of America, which is mostly center parties, right? The, the Republicans and the Democrats are center, like whatever you want to say. Then they're, they're never extremists. 
We don't have enough party to have extremists. Right? If we had like five more parties, you could have an extreme, more extreme party. You have people in the Republican Party that are extremists, right? But in general, the party isn't an extremist party. That's all I'm saying. Anyways, what is likely to happen on July 23rd? This is the last part of the, the article here. Despite the PB's lead, Sanchez's gamble appears to be paying off, and the socialists are beginning to rally in the polls. Much will depend on turnout and what Vox demands in return for helping the PP into government. While the far-right party's seat count, may, seat count may fall, it may very well achieve its mission of helping to govern Spain. The consulting and strategy company Teneo calculates there is a 60% chance of PP-led government and a 30% chance of PSOE-led government and a 10% chance of another election if no agreement is reached on a new administration. Spain held four general elections between December 2015 and November 2019. Wow, that's four. Okay. So, okay, so this consulting place is saying that it's probably going to be a right-leaning government because that's just the, what's happening in Europe overall. They're like, oh, yeah, uh -huh. we'll be fine, and then the right wing is suddenly the leader, and they're like, okay. <laughs> Never mind. We're now, we're now fascist, guys. It happened so quickly. So we'll see what happens in Spain. I'm excited to, to find out and uh, hear a story. Okay, and then this just in, Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still dead. And that's an old joke. Oh, and, and I just I just thought of a new uh, name for our, if we had like a fake editorial uh, reporter, her name could be Analytical. <laughs> anyway. In Hot Hot Planet news, from AP Tyoneal Death Valley National Park. Even as already extreme temperatures are forecast to climb even higher, potentially topping records with major U.S. heat wave, tourists are arriving at this infamous desert landscape on the California-Nevada border. Daniel Jusseru snapped a photo earlier this week of a famed thermometer outside the aptly named Furnace Creek Visitor Center after challenging himself to a run in the sweltering heat. I was really noticing, you know, I didn't feel so hot, but my body was working really hard to cool myself. That's called the act of heat stroke, my friend. Said Jusius, an active runner who was visiting from Germany. See, no Americans are doing this. <laughs> His photos showed the thermometer reading at 120 degrees Celsius. On Fahrenheit, 120 Celsius would be something. No, 48 degrees Celsius. Most visitors at this time of year make it only a short distance to any site in the park, which builds itself as the lowest, hottest, and driest place on Earth. It is a dry lake bed. Before returning to the sanctuary of an air-conditioned vehicle, the, the weekend the temperatures would climb to 130 degrees Fahrenheit, or 54.4 C, but likely that won't deter some Willing to brave the heat, signs at hiking trails advise against venturing out after 10 a.m. Though nighttime temperatures are still expected to be over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. The hottest temperature recorded at Death Valley was 134 degrees in July 1913, according to the Park Service. Other parks have long-standing warnings for hikers at Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona. Officials are cautioning people to stay off the trails for most of the day in the inner canyon where temperatures can be 20 degrees hotter than the rim because no wind gets down there. In the west, Big Bend National Park 
near the wet Rio Grande is expected to be at least 110 degrees Fahrenheit. I have been in Big Bend area when it's 100 degrees and it is brutal. I mean, it is humid, disgusting, bugs everywhere, weeds, it's just, <laughs> it's and you're right next to the Rio Grande. So, it, although it's supposed to be drinkable water, it's kind of muddy in a lot of places. The precautions are very, <clears throat> very across parks and landscapes, and Cynthia Hernandez, a National Park Service spokesman. Certain trails might be closed if conditions are too dangerous. Alerts and restrictions are posted on websites and individual parks. This has turned into a thing about every park now. Preliminary information from the Park Service shows that at least four people have died this year from heat-related causes across the 425 national park sites. That includes a 65-year-old man in San Diego who was found dead in his vehicle in Death Valley early this month, according to news release. Yeah, sit in your vehicle. Hope your air conditioning works. Death, Death Valley National Park emphasizes self-reliance over expectations of rescue. No shit. I'm not going out there. I'll die. While Rangers patrol park roads and consists and, and assists motorists in the stress is no guarantee lost tourists will get aid in time. More than 1.1 million annually visit the desert park, which sits over a portion of California-Nevada border west of Las Vegas. It is the largest national park in the lower 48. About one-fifth of visitors come. About one-fifth of the visitors come in June, July, and August. Many are tempted to explore even after the suggested cutoff times. Physical activity can make the heat even more unbearable and leave people feeling exhausted. Sunbaked rocks, sand, and soil still radiate after sunset. It does feel like the sun has gone through your skin and is getting into your bones, said park ranger Nicole Handler. Others mentioned feeling their eyes dying, drying out from the hot wind sweeping through the valley. It's very hot. I mean, especially when there's a breeze. You would think that maybe they would give you some slight relief from the heat, but it really does feel like airboard blow dryer just going back in your face, said Alicia Dempster, who is visiting from Edinburgh, Scotland. Death Valley is a narrow, I should have known with a Scottish accent, eh? Death Valley is a narrow 218 foot basin that is below sea level, but is situated among high steep mountain ranges, according to the Park Service website. The bone dry air and meager plant coverage allows sunlight to heat up the desert surface. The rocks and soil emit all that heat in the turn, which then becomes trapped in the depths of the valley. The park's brownish hills features signage saying heat kills and other messaging such as stovepipe wells, sun warning travelers of the savage summer sun. Still, there are several all-expiring sites that draw tourists. Badwater Basin, made of salt flats, is considered the lowest point in all of North America. The eye-opening 600-foot Ubehe crater dates back over 2,000 years, and Sabrisky Point is a prime sunrise viewing point. Also, you can watch that rocks that actually move in Death Valley. It's an interesting place, really. Um, I guess this goes on a little bit more. No, not much more. Only two more paragraphs. Egan Chen from Taiwan called the park a beautiful and iconic, very special place. Josh Miller, a visitor from Indianapolis who has been to 20 national parks, so far shared that sentiment. It's hot, but the scenery is awesome instead. Famously, there's a, there's a race where you run from the depths of Death Valley to the top of Mount Shasta. So you're going from the lowest point on the, maybe Earth, to the highest point in North America, well, continental uh, United States, in one race. And it's only like a 50-mile journey. 
right? From that place to that place. And it's all up. Anyway. It's a long story. time, yeah. yeah I, know a, I know a Marine who ran in that race. And that might be 100 miles, actually. Okay. Pretty Yo, cool. Sorry. Yeah. I, I think they're still running. All right. Your story. All right. That was the wrong one. My bad. Here we go. This is the right one. All right. Updates on a very short update on the cluster munitions that were going to be sent to Ukraine. Well, they have arrived. This is from Associated Press in Washington. Cluster munitions provided by the United States have now arrived in Ukraine, the Pentagon confirmed on Thursday. The munitions, bombs that open in the air and release scores of smaller bomblets, are seen by- that's just a cute thing. I know it's like they kill people, but it's like, oh, look look at the little bomblets. Oh, look at them. They're so cute. Yeah. People love those videos. Yeah. As seen by the U.S. as a way to get Kyiv critically needed ammunition to help bolster its offensive and push through Russian front lines. The U.S. leaders debated the thorny issue for months before President Joe Biden made the final decision last week. U.S. leaders have said that the U.S. will send a version of the munition that has a reduced dud rate, meaning fewer of the smaller bomblets fail to explode. These unexploded rounds, which often litter battlefields and populated civilian areas, cause unintended deaths. U.S. officials said Washington will provide thousands of the rounds, but provided no specific numbers. Yeah, it could be 10,000. It could be 1,000. We have no idea. Lieutenant Jen... Right. Lieutenant General, sorry, let Jen. Lieutenant General Douglas Sims, the director of operations for the Joint Staff, told reporters on Thursday that cluster munitions have indeed been delivered to Ukraine at this point, but it was not clear if Ukrainian troops had used them yet. Human rights organizations criticized Biden's decision, noting that at least 149 civilians were killed or injured worldwide by the weapon in 2021, according to the cluster munitions monitor. Biden described the decision to provide the projectiles as very difficult, citing their record of killing civilians. More than 120 countries around the world, but not the US, U Russia, or Ukraine, have signed on to an international convention prohibiting the production of cluster munitions and discouraging their use. Both Moscow and Kyiv have deployed the munitions during the war, and Ukrainian regional officials have regularly accused Russian forces of using them to target civilians. Ukrainians. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky on Wednesday talked to Biden, or thanked Biden, for the U.S. military aid, and said shipments of the controversial cluster munitions would help Ukraine's fight against Russia. The two met during NATO's summit in Lithuania, where Western nations made the fresh pledge of weapons and ammunition to fight Russia's invasion. So, just a really short, they did it. We talked about, I think, last week, or I don't know, was it last week or this, or this week? That they're bad Especially. and they kill people, but you know what? They're also great for defensive positions and pushing people out of defensive positions, seeing as Ukraine is trying to kick Russia out of defensive positions like I think they're in, uh, what are they called? Not ditches, but ditches. Trenches. Trenches. They're in trenches. trenches yeah. Rus the Russians are actually in trenches right now, and the best way to get them out of those trenches is to throw some cluster bombs at them, according to everybody. Right including people who yeah. don't have any stakes in the business. So we'll see how it works. I guess yeah. we'll hear about cluster munitions kill 50 people in about a month or something, and we'll see how what happens. Yeah, well, 
Every time we try to unilaterally disarm, Russia pulls something like this, or somebody does. It's like, yeah, we're not going to unilaterally disarm, so why should Russia? Okay. Yeah. Let's get on with it, man. All right. Let's get them out of there. Let's get this war over with. Get back to prosperity. And in some odd news or good news, or we're going to look at it, the world's largest 3D printed building is a horse barn that can endure Florida hurricanes. This is by Andy Corbley of the Good News Network. The world's largest 3D printing has been completed. Printing ba- printed building has been completed by Florida-based printing farms, a luxury horse barn spanning 10,100 square feet, which they claim is almost 50% larger than the previous record holder in the Middle East. The firm uses a COBOD BOD2 construction 3D printer to create the structure in Wellington in southern Florida. The building has been constructed to endure the extreme weather challenges of hurricane-prone, horse-loving region with a focus on structural integrity and occupant safety. The versatility, versatility and benefits of the 3D printing technology also are also demonstrated through the structure's 3D printed walls that create a cavity and air gap which provides natural cooling to the building. COBD said COBOD said in a statement the building I guess we can call them Cobod 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 okay the building is 150 feet and 83 feet wide the the process well is 150 feet 155 feet long you left out the word long and 83 83 feet wide the building process involved five repositionings of the printer with two sides completed twice and the middle section executed once. Cobod printers have now created the world's tallest 3D 3D printed building, 33 feet, the world's fastest 3 buildings in 8 days in Oman, and now the world's largest 3D printed building. Printed Farms has done a remarkable job in completing this massive structure and the project demonstrations demonstrates again how 3D printing is transforming the construction industry for the better, said Philip Lund Nelson, Cobod co-founder and head of Americas. Head of Americas? <laughs> we are especially proud to observe our 3D printers being utilized for a broad range of applications besides housing, which is the industry's predominant use case. Our machines dominate the space already, but are in addition also used to print turbine bases, schools, office buildings, data centers, and silos, and horse barns right up to the list now. And there's a video that goes with it. You can go to New York goodnewsnetwork.org and you can watch a video of a horse barn being printed. So cool video of the day for everyone. We can okay. now do it manipulate their phone okay you start can now print freaking barns dude yep. amazing genuinely amazing mm-hmm. okay i totally forgot to look up a culture article here give me a sec oh boy i can i can make horse noises while you do that <laughs> nah, not really i mean yeah I'm we mystery. already covered we are we already covered the strike so I don't really think we need to talk about that more. I don't think there's anything to say about it, really. Of course, of course. 
Okay. We'll kind of cover it, but from like the other side. So these are the people who are like running everything and they're like, oh, people are going on strike. Boo. Okay. So this is from Adrian Horton on The Guardian. Disney chief Bob Iger says strike by writers and actors. Very disturbing for his pockets, that is. <laughs> okay. As a strike by SAG AFTRA AFTRA appears imminent without a contract, the Disney chief executive Bob Iger has said writers and actors preparing to picket are not being realistic. With their expectations, and that the threat of the strike is disturbing. In an appearance on CNBC's Squawk Box on Thursday morning, Iger said the decision by actors and writers union to go on strike was very disturbing to me. We've talked about going union. Wait, we've talked about disruptive forces on this on this business and all the challenges we're facing. The recovery from COVID, which is ongoing, is not completely back. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. Speaking to CNBC's David Faber from the Sun Valley Conference in Idaho, the 70-year-old said, I understand any labor organization's desire to work on behalf of its members to get the most comp- compensation and be compensated fairly, based on the value of what they deliver. We managed, as an industry, to negotiate a very good deal with the Directors Guild that reflects the value that the directors contribute to this great business. We wanted to do the same thing with writers, and we'd like to do the same thing with actors. There's a level of expectation that we have that is not very realistic. And and they are adding to the set of the challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive. Iger spoke hours after the Screen Actors Guild America... American Federation of Television Radio Artists, SAG-AFTRA, recommended strike action after a midnight deadline for negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, AMPTP, passed without a contract. The National Board will decide on Thursday morning as the industry braces for the first simultaneous strike by Hollywood writers and actors in 60 years. SAG-AFTRA President Fran Dresser said in a statement, the companies have refused to meaningfully engage on some topics, and on others completely stonewalled us. Until they do negotiate in good faith, we cannot begin to reach a deal. We have no choice but to move forward in unity on behalf of our membership, with a strike recommendation in our national board. The board will discuss this issue. The strike would have immediate impact on public publicity efforts for the summer's top films. Iger said that while he respects the right of the unions to get as much as they possibly can in compensation for their people, they must be realistic about the business environment and what this business can deliver. He added it will have a very, very damaging effect on the whole business, and unfortunately, there's huge collateral damage in the industry to people who are supportive services, and I could go on and on. It will affect the economy of different regions even because of the sheer size of the business. It's a shame. It's a real shame. His comments come a day after it was announced that he would remain chief executive of Disney throughout 2026 instead of stepping down at the end of the next year as originally planned. In the same interview, Iger also responded to campaign attacks by the Republican candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, particularly his accusation that Disney is in favor of sexualizing our children. Iger said, We are preeminent entertainment in the world. We are proud of our track record there. The notion that Disney is in any way sexualizing our children, quite frankly, is preposterous and inaccurate. 
Disney sued DeSantis in April, claiming that the governor's decision to strip the company of control of the special district containing its signature theme park was retaliation for its opposition to Florida's Don't Say Gay bill, which forbids instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through the third grade. Because you gotta be a pedophile for those few years, and then they can learn that they're being sexually assaulted, and then, then, then it's fine. And then Anyways, they can we date, talked about this uh, yesterday. Children need to know when they're getting sexually assaulted, no matter what age they are. <laughs> Thank you. And when, when, when they're dating Matt Gates, that's yeah. probably a <laughs> congressman, famously who dates high schoolers. Yeah. Anyway, it's this day in history. Okay, that's the answer. Hey, British Mountaineer <laughs> became the first person to climb the Matterhorn. I don't think he did it by himself, but let's go ahead and assume he did that all by himself in 1865. <laughs> just him. Nobody else. Yeah. Nobody caring. Just him. No Sherpa guides or anything. Right. American gunfighter Billy Kill Kid was shot by and killed by allegedly by Sheriff Pat Garrett on this day in 1881. Sacco and Banzetti, and it's still a controversial decision. Immigrant from Italian anarchists were found guilty of murder of two men in Massachusetts, 1921. In this day in 1860, British ethologist Jane Goodall first arrived in what became Gombre Stream National Park in Tanzania. There she would conduct her groundbreaking research on chimpanzee. Jane Goodall, still alive, by the way. So that was over 50 years ago. American baseball great Hank Aaron hit his 500th career home run on this day in 1968. 1969, Easy Rider was released in U.S. theaters, became a classic counterculture starring Peter Fonda and, uh, well, it doesn't say, it says Jack Nicholson, but uh, Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper was the writer of the movie, I believe. Ever, ever see Easy Rider? Yeah. Interesting one. Like I don't think so. Well, if you heard the song Born to be Wild, that was, that's from that movie. Okay. 2013, the world's last telegram was sent as India's state-run telecommunications company ended its telegraph service. So no oh, more telegraphs wow. for years. There's not been a telegraph sent. And you didn't even notice. I, 2016, well, I wasn't alive, I think, to notice. 2013, you were alive. Oh, okay. 2016. 2016, in France's third major terrorist attack in 18 months, a man drove a truck through a crowd of revelers celebrating Bastille Day in Nice, killing more than 80 people and injuring hundreds. So, some asshole ruined everybody's day. Uh, 2017, Iranian mathematician Maryam Markazgani was the first woman in Iranian it was the first woman and first Iranian to be awarded the Fields Medal cited for her standing contributions into dynamics and geometry of Riemann surfaces and modale spaces. Okay. That was a long paragraph. Anyway, she died this day at the age of 40 in 2017. It doesn't even say that she died, but a big, long paragraph. Of old age. She was 40. She was 40. She didn't have old age. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the middle ages. We're not dying of the old age in our 40s, you know, from teeth rot. Okay. Bastille. This day, as we just mentioned, it's Bastille Day. 
On this day in 1789, a mob advanced on the Bastille in Paris, demanding that arms and munitions stored there, but when the guards resisted, the crowd captured the prison, an act that symbolized the end of the ancient regime. Ancient regime. Birthdays today. What do you got for his birthday today? July 4th, 1912. What do you got for your famous folk singer? Wrote a lot of great songs. 1960, Jane Lynch was born on this day, American actress and comedian. Ignemar Bergman, Swedish film director, was born on this day, 1918. President Gerald Ford was born on this day, 1913. Gustav Klimt, Austrian painter, was born on this day in 1862. And what day is it? You would like to know? Would you like to know? I don't know. You might not want to like to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It's World Kebab Day, which I'm probably going to do now that I see it sitting in this picture. Uh, National Mac and Cheese Day. Well, didn't we just have that recently? I swear we had that. Have to look I in the archives. I swear we just did that. <laughs> I think we did, man. They're just sneaking these in on us. National Grand Marnier Day, which is a cognac. If you like oh, getting yeah. drunk and mac and cheese, get drunk, eat some kebabs and mac and cheese. And it's National Tape Measure Day. National Tape Measure Day, we got one of those. Collector Car Appreciation Day, that changes annually. Wow, they just, the dates, this year it's on July 14th, because it's a Friday, so there's gonna be a bunch of old cars on the road. And it's Bastille Day, which we already covered, and that's it for history. We're going to Bastille. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Macaroni and and macaroni. we're having some. We're didn't we already have macaroni. macaroni and cheese day? I swear we already had that. We had it again? Well, we know it coincides with Bastille Day now, so we can catch them oh, on it. We can catch them on okay. it. Next time we'll be ready. We know it's Bastille Day, July 14th, cheaters. Don't be trying to sneak macaroni and cheese out of us again. Stop making us eat so much mac and cheese. Okay, well, this has been Allison here from the Netherlands. I guess making some macaroni and cheese later. And uh, we will be hoping that the uh, elections for Spain don't go to the far right. That's what I'm hoping for here in Europe. Let's stop electing far right parties, please. Thank you. And I will see you. you next week for some more news and stomp out that pasta fascism where they keep trying to make us pasta, you fat bastages. Anyway, this is July 14th. This is Roger from the United States where the sun is blinding me on our hot, hot planet. July 14th, 2023 edition of Before Coffee. Before Coffee. That's the way I should do it. <laughs> Be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.